Welcome to the West Side Audio Message Podcast. We hope you enjoy today's message. And if you're looking for more ways to connect with West Side Assembly of God, feel free to check us out at www.westsideag.org. You'll find all the information about our service times, upcoming events, and opportunities for you to plug in and get connected with West Side Assembly of God. Additionally, you'll find a complete online archive of all of the previous and current messages absolutely free of charge. We hope you are encouraged by this week's message, and thanks again for downloading the West Side Audio Message Podcast. Reading from the second chapter of Judges. After that generation died, another generation grew up who did not acknowledge the Lord or remember the mighty things he had done for Israel. The Israelites did evil in the Lord's sight and served the images of Baal. They abandoned the Lord, the God of their ancestors, who had brought them out of Egypt. They went after other gods, worshiping the gods of the people around them, and they angered the Lord. They abandoned the Lord to serve Baal and the images of Ashtoreth. This made the Lord burn with anger against Israel, so he handed them over to raiders who stole their possessions. He turned them over to their enemies all around, and they were no longer able to resist them. Every time Israel went out to battle, the Lord fought against them, causing them to be defeated just as he had warned, and the people were in great distress. Then the Lord raised up judges to rescue the Israelites from their attackers. Yet Israel did not listen to the judges, but prostituted themselves by worshiping other gods. How quickly they turned away from the path of their ancestors who had walked in obedience to the Lord's commands. Whenever the Lord raised up a judge over Israel, he was with that judge and rescued the people from their enemies through the judge's lifetime. For the Lord took pity on his people who were burdened by oppression and suffering. But when the judge died, the people returned to their corrupt ways, behaving worse than those who had lived before them. They went after other gods, serving and worshiping them. And they refused to give up their evil practices and stubborn ways. Now the shocking statement that catches our eye here is the very first verse after that generation died, another generation grew up who did not acknowledge the Lord, did not remember the mighty things he had done for Israel. One generation away from apostasy. But it really didn't happen that fast. It was one generation that actually came to be known as the generation that turned away from God, but it was the previous generation, and maybe the previous generation, and who knows how far back, that made their little compromises that led to that breakover point where finally one generation did not remember the Lord, did not acknowledge Him, did not think about the great and mighty things that He had done. Now, in this story, I want to point out some things that I think are vitally important for us to keep from ever coming to the place of losing a generation. 
I think that should be of great importance to every one of us here today. To the very oldest ones here, we care, I know we do, that we have a church that survives us. We care that when we're gone, ministry will continue and light will continue to shine against the darkness. We care about that. We should. I believe we do. But here's some things I derive from this story. I think it would be well for us to focus on these points. What can we do as a generation today that remembers the Lord, acknowledges Him, we think about Him, we adore Him and honor Him? What can we do to implant that in the next generation? We have a duty as a church. We have a duty as parents to make sure another generation understands the Bible, understands God. Within my lifetime, I began to see things shifting. How many of you remember when Dr. Spock first began to come on the scene? And young parents were looking for clues in how to raise their children. And it was always what Dr. Spock says. And it wasn't always the best advice. How many of you hear when you were growing up that from your parents you received a paddling sometimes? Now looking back on that, was that abuse? But you wouldn't want to do that in Walmart today because they would throw you in jail. Now, people who have, who have spanked their children for disobedience uh, have no intentions of abusing their child. We have no doubt child abuse goes on. It's heinous. It's despicable. We understand that. But God in his wisdom has designed a part of our anatomy that can receive an infliction without permanent damage that somewhat humiliates and manages to straighten out corrupt behavior. And since man has discovered that, it's worked well. I didn't repeat many of my mistakes that culminated in a spanking. That did the trick. Oh, I dreaded that. I would have negotiated for anything else except a whipping. Take away my toys. Lock me in my room. Anything. Just don't whip me. So I've seen things change. I've seen during that time the attitude of young parents change about how they're going to raise their children. And I, I think it's a little bit of uh, an arrogance that the young parents, they've got it all figured out. Now, mom and dad did it wrong, but we've got it figured out. We're going to do it right. And... 
so they start creating their own method of, of discipline and raising their children. And I watch sometime. I told you, I watch. I'm a watcher. I observe things. And I've, I've watched. There was a, a pastor and his wife that had uh, a couple of children that were just incorrigible. They were young. I mean, this is the little child, the little boy that when we were having a fellowship meeting at one of the churches, the little boy got into the secretary's office, got some scissors, and came running. Now, the, the running with scissors. And the things were open in front of his face, and he's just running. And I'm panicked. You know, this is, this is not bad children. This is bad parenting. Climbing on top of the table where the food is and getting in the food and putting their hands in there and, and uh, grabbing the cake. And this is bad parenting. But you see a new set of parents come along and they're going to try it their way. My dad's method was that I knew if he spoke, I had to listen. If I didn't listen, there was punishment. It was just automatic. I understood that. That worked. So I didn't try to ignore his command. I knew what that would result in. But I've watched young parents today talk to their children, and the children ignore them. And they do whatever they want. So this, this young lady's, uh, she, her method was this. When the children are doing something wrong, she would say, do you choose punishment? And I watched as the child didn't respond. And she would repeat, do you choose punishment? And the child was in its own world. And I thought, my father never was so polite to me when I was wrong to come and say, son, do you choose punishment? The punishment came before he could have got the question out or I could have got the answer back. So we try. I've seen a lot of changes during that time. I've, I've seen a, another generation or two come up in my lifetime that have boasted, I'm not going to force my child to go to church. I'm going to let them make that decision for themselves. That shocks me. That shocks me because I know what they're thinking. They're thinking if you force your child to go to church, they'll get sour on that, and they will never want to do that again. But they don't think about that when their child needs a doctor. I'll let my child choose whether he wants to go to a doctor or not. No, you won't. You're going to do what you know your child needs. And they're just going to have to deal with whether they grow up not to like doctors or not. Because you're going to show them when you're sick, you need a doctor. I'm going to let my child choose if they go to kindergarten or first grade or second grade or elementary school. Or I'm just going to let them choose their education. No, you're not. Because you realize if they don't get their education, they're not going to function in this life. You're not going to let them choose. Why would you let them make a choice at that young age about going to church? I don't understand that. Because somebody thinks, well, I've been forced to go to church. I'm bitter about it. That, you know, there's something wrong there. We'll find out what the problem is. The problem is not church. The problem is not somebody wanting you to do the right thing and insisting you do that until the day that you're old enough to do whatever you want to do. But I don't understand that. 
So what do we do as a generation to have a positive impact on the next generation? Because I don't want godliness to die in the Rooks family, in this branch of the Rooks family, with me and Anne. And I've watched my boys grow up, and now they're grown, they're married, and they understand godly things. And I'm watching them instill godly principles in their children. And I'm thinking, God, I have so far made it to pass the baton to another generation. But now I'm worried about my grandchildren. I don't want them to drop the ball. How can we get godliness to go? We're only one generation away from this branch of the Rookses becoming total apostates. Unless somehow we get God instilled in people and make them understand why it's important to believe there is a God, to know who this God is. Why is this important? And to have them have a heart that says, in my life, I want nothing more than to please God and everything else is secondary. Now, how do you get people, young people, children, to adopt that attitude so when they grow up, they are low-maintenance Christians? They just know it's important to serve God and love Him and honor Him with their life. How do you do that? What a trick, huh? Getting to understand God. Getting them to honor Him. The first thing I think that I see from this story here today is we have to understand the importance of godly leadership. Israel's great military leader, Joshua, is now dead. And no single man stepped up to take Joshua's place. That's whenever Israel began to go cuckoo. God spoke to the people and told them he had given them victory in the land of Canaan if they would go and take it. But there's no Joshua to lead them. He told them, go and conquer Canaan. It's yours. No Joshua. The tribe of Judah made an agreement. They would go take their land, but they went and found the tribe of Simeon. And they said, let's work together. Together we will go conquer our territory. And when it's done, together we'll go conquer your territory. Look, there's nothing wrong with that. You're thinking. And so they went and they attempted to conquer their territory together. It's a good plan. Everything seemed to work pretty well up to a point. The problem is there were some failures. And those failures were going to be absolutely critical for Israel. Their failures were what were going to lead to that shocking statement that says, and there arose up another generation after this generation that did not know the Lord. They did not remember his miracles. And so here we begin to see this systematic failure of the generation that should not have dropped the ball, who set the next generation up for failure. Judah went to conquer their land along with Simeon, but they failed to drive out all of the people living in the plains. They got the mountains taken care of, but the Bible says that down in the plains, the people had iron chariots, and they didn't drive them out. And of course, the question is, is God too small for iron chariots? Something happened that they trusted God only so far. And let's pause for a minute and think about that. The older we get, 
sometimes the harder it is for us to trust God like we did when we were young. Older people, can you think about that? Can you agree with it? It's easy for us to trust God when we have our health, our strength, our income. But whenever those things become limited, we're a little bit scared to step out for God. And we have a mixture of people here today. We have some young people who have uh, uh, blind ambition. They just want to do it. I don't care what the cost, let's do it. And you have some of the people in the middle that have some balance and say, well, we have faith, but let's be wise about it. And then you've got some, some of the older generation that, you know, they love God, but they don't quite have that courage to step out like they used to. But what we hand to the next generation is very powerful. And if we die in fear... If we die without faith, we die without stretching ourselves out and say, God, I'm going to trust you like Caleb. I love Caleb. His faith didn't wane as he grew older. This was an old man that wanted to go take his land. Give me the land. I feel as young today as the day I was 40 years old. Give it to me. The spirit of Caleb is what ought to dominate us till the day we die. But we get into the spirit of fear. We're afraid. Where's this leadership? Well, let's find out what happened to, to uh, the rest of Israel. The tribe of Benjamin. Each one of these, as I call the name, is a tribe, not a person. The tribe of Benjamin. They failed to drive the De- Jebusites out of Jerusalem. Manasseh failed to drive the Canaanites out of uh, several towns and their surrounding settlements. Ephraim failed to drive the Canaanites out of Gezer. Zebulun failed to drive the Canaanites out. Asher failed to drive the Canaanites out of about a half a dozen towns. Instead, the Bible says, Asher just moved in with them. If you can't get rid of them, just join them. Naphtali failed to drive the Canaanites out of Beth Shemesh and Bethanath. Dan so completely failed on their first attempt The Amorites actually drove them back into the hills and would not even let them come down in the plains. So Dan just stayed in the hills. Then one day, the tribe of Dan decided we're a little stronger, a little wiser. We can go back and we can try and conquer them. So they went down and conquered the Amorites in the plains and took the plains, but they kept the Amorites for slaves. They didn't get rid of them. Every tribe, you can see, made an attempt but made a compromise. And it was the compromise of the tribes without the godly godly leadership that contributed to the failure of the next generation. Without strong godly leadership, people just will find a way to compromise. You have to have some godly leader that will stand there and challenge the people, no, we can't do this. I know what you want to do, but God wants us to do this. We're going to do what God wants us to do. You have to have godly leadership. God commanded King Saul to completely eradicate the Amalekites. But we know the story of how Saul went in there and did not do that. He spared the king and he spared the livestock, pretending like he was going to do that so he could make a sacrifice to God. And that was bad leadership. And then in stark contrast to that, you have Joshua, 
which he pursued five Amorite kings. And the kings went and hid themselves in a cave. And the, Joshua's army found the kings hidden in the cave and sealed the cave up so the kings couldn't escape. They went and got Joshua and said, guess what we've got in the cave? We have five kings for you. Joshua unsealed the cave, brought them out, and hung them. He didn't compromise. No compromise, Joshua. King Saul was leadership, but he was corrupt leadership. Joshua was leadership. He was good leadership. Without a Joshua, the people made their attempts to fulfill their mission, but they quit before the job was done. Every generation needs godly leadership. So who are you trusting? Generations that are here today, every one of you, who are you trusting? Who is your godly leadership? I'm the pastor of this church. That doesn't necessarily mean you trust me. I don't know if you trust my judgment or not. But the question is, who do you trust? Who's your godly godly leadership? Who are you taking your cue from if it's not godly leadership? Who is setting the example for you? We're paying a terrible price here in the United States because we're lacking godly leadership. Paul tells us in 2 Thessalonians that lawlessness and wickedness in this world is held in check by the presence of godly people. But when the leadership becomes corrupt, wickedness thrives. And then even with godly leadership, we need godly fellowship. From our scripture reading, we refer back to the 18th and the 19th verses where we see the description of Israel under judges appointed by God. And God raised up a judge, the people did better. When they were, they were then victorious over the enemy, God showed them favor. They won their battles. But when the judge would die, the Bible says the people returned to their corrupt ways, behaving worse than those who had lived before them. They went after other gods, serving and worshiping them, and they refused to give up their evil practices and their stubborn ways. That's not to say there aren't godly people among us here today. But if people do not choose to follow the righteous... We still have a problem. You can have godly leadership and nobody willing to follow the godly leadership. So young people, who do you look to? Who's setting your example? Who is your influence? Who stands above the foolish crowd and sets the example of godliness and purity and wisdom for your life? Because here's the thing about it. Every one of you here today, we will rise no higher than our heroes. Who do you call your hero? I would be very cautious. This is free pastoral advice. I would be very cautious in this mad idolizing day and age we're living in at who you idolize, who you call your hero, who you adore, who you worship for their talents, for their presence. I would be very careful. Because you'll never rise any higher than those people. It's a shame that the celebrities of this culture are mostly degenerate fools. It's a shame that they cultivate such a huge following 
It's a shame that their hedonistic lifestyle is glamorized, normalized, idolized. It's a shame that young rising pop stars fall apart before our very eyes. And they continue, even with their life falling apart, they continue to draw record crowds wherever they go. Because somebody idolizes these corrupt people. So who's the spiritual leader for this generation? Let me say this. God is looking for people who will be spiritual leaders for this generation. He's looking here in this sanctuary today for young people who will take the high road who will shake off the call and the, and the allure of the world, who will refuse to dance to hell's music, who will refuse to march to hell's tempo, who will say, as for me, I'm going to serve the Lord, and I don't care what the crowd does. God's looking for young people who will stand up and make themselves special to set the leadership for their generation. You may not have enough influence to change the nation, but you can change your circle of friends. You can refuse to join in with what they did. You can take a stand when none of the rest of them take a stand. I had to walk away from multiple situations when I was growing up. Where I went out just to have a good time with my friends, but they started getting involved in things that I knew was dangerous. And I would leave. Just get out of there. I can't be here. I remember one night I went with a couple of friends and we went to a, 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 a movie up at the theater. And when we got to the movie, they met one of their friends and he had one of these long coats on with the big kangaroo pouches on it. And he pulled out a couple of little I, call, I guess they call them ponies, beer cans about this big. And, I mean, none of us were more than 15 years old. And I could see what was going on right now. I left. I went home. It's done. It's over. Because you don't tempt the Lord. You don't flatter yourself thinking, oh, I'm too strong and I'll be here. You just don't do that. You've got to take a stand. I walked out in many a situation like that. I just visited with a high school classmate of mine. About a week ago, he came through Davenport, wanted to meet us for an evening meal. We were talking about our, our high school days. I graduated in 72. And I told him, I, I said, John, I said, I, I don't go to my class reunions because I didn't have anything in common with most of those kids there. Other than the boys that I knew that went to my church, I cannot tell you of one other person in my graduating class of 192 that I knew was a Christian. Now, there may have been some because I didn't know them all personally, but I did not know that. But I could tell you a bunch of heathens. Out of 192, the only ones I knew for sure were God-fearing, God-respecting Christians was the ones that attended my church. The rest of them, they were party-hard animals. And I told Jonas, I don't go to reunions. I didn't like them then. I don't like them now. I don't have anything in common with these people. I couldn't hang out with them because they did things I did not appreciate doing. They went places I did not appreciate going. I just had nothing in common. And I called out one girl's name uh, to John. I said, do you remember her? 
He said, yes, I do. I said, I was sitting in class in my senior year, and she turned around and looked at me and said, are you going to go to the senior party down at the river? I said, no, I'm not going to. She, she, was, she was incensed. She said, you're not going to go to the party? The senior, you're going to miss the senior party? I said, yes. She said, you don't want to be there with all the booze and the women and the sex? I mean, that's pretty blatant in your face of what this is all about. I chose not to. I chose not to. It wasn't just a matter of being there because it's a senior thing and you can't miss the senior activities. It's a matter of somebody has to be strong enough to demonstrate godly leadership to a corrupt generation. And God has blessed me because I chose to take a stand for him. He blessed me with a wonderful wife that thanks to her patience... Uh, our marriage is still intact. God's blessed me. God's blessed me with three wonderful young men that have, I've never had to bail them out of jail. And I'm not trying to get braggadocious because I, I realize that could happen to anybody. God has blessed me. And I don't know why, unless at some point I blessed God by taking a stand. Who in this generation is going to be leadership and stand up? And say, I don't care what you do. I want to please God. I want to take a stand for him. Some of the most powerful stories in history are courageous men and women who demonstrated leadership in things that are good and right and godly and just. Not only do we have biblical stories of heroes like Elijah and Elisha, who were essentially the most powerful men in the kingdom and feared and revered by kings, and stories of godly men like Joseph and Daniel and Moses and Joshua and Abraham, who rose above their peers and stood against the popular opinion in order to obey God. Not to forget Jesus Christ himself who came into a world who largely rejected him, ignored him, misunderstood him, yet he started a movement that has grown into the largest world religion today. But outside of the Bible, we have heroes of the faith as well. The story of John Knox, the 16th century preacher who virtually single-handedly led the Scottish Reformation, who single-handedly set the moral tone for the Church of Scotland, who himself, Queen Mary, Bloody Mary, said that she feared John Knox more than all the armies of her enemies. One godly man shook the queen. We know the story of Martin Luther, who took a stand against the formality of religion and nailed his 95 theses to the door of the church at Wittenberg, basically boiled it down to say it's not by works that we are saved, but it leaped off the pages of the Bible that the just shall live by faith. A hero of the faith who chose to take a stand against a dying church. Or George Whitfield, the father of the Great Awakening, and Finney, the father of modern revivalism, and Wilberforce, who stood steadfast against the popular practice of slavery in England. In 1780, he became a politician. In 1785, he became a Christian and headed the parliamentary campaign for 26 years, being voted down year after year in trying to pass laws against slavery. It seemed he was making no progress. 
But after 26 years, he finally managed to pass one bill that began to break this stronghold. And 26 years later, finally passed another bill that finally outlawed slavery. Heroes of the faith and people who take stands when nobody else will. Number two, not only do we need godly leadership, we understand the necessity of setting godly examples. And that's this generation that you are here listening me to, to me today, and you have an example to set for another generation. Rarely does another generation come along and assess the situation and say, we have a responsibility to pull the boundaries back in. Our fathers and mothers have gone too far. We're going to come in and bring things back in. It's the natural flow of things for the next generation to take up the stakes and move them out another few feet. And the next generation pulls up stakes and moves them out another few feet. And you've seen the evolution of that just in my lifetime, how the boundaries have been stretched outward farther and farther and farther with every generation. That is the sinful trend of mankind. They always want to allow a little bit more than the previous generation has allowed. One generation to play a crucial role in the spiritual well-being of the next generation. That's us. We will be responsible in part for how the next generation responds to God. If we demonstrate to the next generation, to the young generation here today, that God's not important in our life, if we demonstrate to the next generation that God is just a hobby, that our life doesn't really match our words, you have fed the next generation permission to do the same thing you have done. In our story from Judges chapter 2, we can see the impact of the actions of the previous generation and how that affected their children and their grandchildren. The elders had already begun a legacy of compromise and failure. Not only would the heirs inherit the lax attitudes and the ethics of their parents, but they would be forced to grow up in and live in the compromising situations that their parents put them in. They shouldn't have been raised among the Canaanites, but they were. They shouldn't have been exposed to the culture of the heathens, but they were. They shouldn't have seen their parents say, this is far enough, you don't have to go all the way. But they did. They saw their parents fall short of God's plan for them. They saw their parents become compromising and lax. And this generation grew up and said, so what's the big deal? Why should I be passionate about God? My dad wasn't. My grandfather wasn't. And they became the first generation in all of Israel's history about which it was said they didn't know the Lord and they didn't remember his good deeds, his miracles, his mighty deeds. I don't believe we give enough thought to our actions and how they influence others. I don't believe we think often enough when we get ready to make that compromising decision what the younger generation thinks of that. I don't think we think often enough 
about how we have blazed a path somebody else will follow. All we think about is, can I get away with it? If I survive this weekend and I can get back and, and be all right with God, everything's cool, everything's okay. It's not because somehow, some way, when there's a moral compromise in your life that even nobody knows but you and your private closet of friends, somehow, somehow, it comes out someday. It just, you can't hide those things. It produces a compromise in the next generation. They have a way of finding out. The third thing I feel is very important is it's essential to have a first-hand knowledge of the Lord. Again, I read that portion that says that generation did not acknowledge the Lord or remember the mighty things he had done for Israel. That's an odd situation. They didn't acknowledge the Lord and they didn't remember his mighty works. God had been scrubbed from their history. God was blotted out of their minds. There is this phenomenon happening in our country today. And you've heard it. And it's called the dumbing down of America. Math no longer is absolute. Grammar is no longer important. We have made accommodations to a generation that refuses to abide by the rules of math and grammar and history and allowed them to make up their own version of it and we have anointed that and said that's okay. The dumbing down of America. Diploma mills are these days churning out bogus degrees without requiring even a fraction of the work normally required by legitimate schools. And I see people walking around that say they have doctor's degrees, but they bought it from an institution. We're no longer demanding the breathtaking genius of people like Rembrandt, or Michelangelo, or Monet. The arts are bending so low to accommodate works that could literally be the efforts of a child or an animal. We're given ridiculous works of art, like one by an artist called Keith Arnett, that he takes a picture of the contents of a garbage can behind a restaurant, and he hangs it in the art gallery, and people pay hundreds of dollars for this. Ives Klein who painted a canvas totally blue and it sold for thousands of dollars. Or Duchamp, who mounted a urinal on a pedestal and put a sign about it, above it calling it the fountain. Or the infamous jar of urine with a crucifix of Jesus Christ submerged in it with a name title so vile I can't even tell you what it's called, and the National Endowment for the Arts paid to have that on display in art museums across the nation. The traveling jar of urine and its art. The dumbing down of America. The cinema, highly motivated by ticket sales, rarely turns out a movie anywhere close to the Oscar winners of the early mid-1900s. 
There are classic movies that have been made, well made. Movies like Of Mice and Men by John Steinbeck and another one by Steinbeck, Grapes of Wrath. Or To Kill a Mockingbird. Fascinating, powerful stories that have been put on the cinema screen. And today we just get junk a diet of movie filled with profanity and gore and nudity and raunch of every type imaginable with no logical plot and people paying good money to go watch it because we got the dumbing down of America. History is being radically revised to program how people think about history. It's been suggested by the revisionists of history that during the Holocaust in Germany... They are now trying to convince people there were never really any gas chambers. The Holocaust never really happened. It's all a myth. The diary of Anne Frank was a total hoax. And it goes even farther back than that. It goes to the four Gospels are just mythical books. Jesus Christ never existed. One textbook that is being used today defines pilgrims as people who take long trips with no reference whatsoever in the history book as to why they took a long trip for religious freedom. The dumbing down of America. One physics instructor in high school lamented, he said, the math questions, equations that are absolutely vital for doing physics are totally eliminated from the test where you achieve the certificate of secondary education. But he said, instead of asking those questions to determine that my students know their stuff, they ask them things like this. Why do radio stations broadcast digital signals rather than analog? The answer, so my iPad can receive it. Questions like this. Why must we develop renewable energy resources? That's the questions they're asking. Not how to do the vital math to be a physicist. The dumbing down of America bleeds over into the dumbing down of Christianity because it's the work of hell to redefine what it truly means to be a Christian. Hell works to redefine God, to revise the immutable truths of God's word, to redefine sin to accommodate modern man's behavior. To redefine God. Who is this God anyway? We know a little bit more about God because we've got thousands of years of record of how God intersected and dealt with man. We learned his, his temperament. We learned about his thought process. We learned about his holiness. We learned about his patience. We learned about his judgment. We learned about, a lot about God. But whenever... God spoke to Abraham. Abraham didn't have any writings to tell him who this person was that's telling him to take his family, move out of the Ur of the Chaldees, and go and take a land. Who is this? He doesn't know who it is. And the early church historians, as they sit down and begin to hammer out systematic theology so we would have a way of studying Scripture and understanding scriptural Uh, subject matters, an understanding God, systematic way of studying. One of the first things they studied is, let's make a systematic way of understanding God theology. 
And the earliest attempts to describe God began with, with, a, with a realization we have no human words that can adequately describe God. They don't exist because God is so many things that we are not. So if we call God good, we are only applying human goodness to him. But God is more than good. We don't have a word for it. So they were stymied. How do you describe God? And what they did is they began to describe what God is not. The very most fundamental thing of understanding God is understanding everything God is not. That gets you headed in the right direction. So the Bible is filled with these not words. He is, and the not words begin with I am or I in or uh, you in. He is not. He's immutable. He's not mutable. He's not changeable. He's invisible. He's unlimited. He's incorruptible. And we start taking away everything that God is not. Eventually, if you pull it all away, you've got God. But then history began to share a little bit about who God is. And especially when Jesus Christ came in the likeness of man and walked among us. And these puzzling who he is and who his father is. And Jesus said, let me give you a hint. Anybody who's seen me has seen the father. And we have a revelation of God, but we have the dumbing down of Christianity. As people today are trying to change the definition of who God is. And religions in the world that think God is just the flowers and God's just the trees and God is all the good things of the world. They don't have a clue who this is. Moses was totally perplexed when this bush spoke to him and said, go back to Egypt and tell them to let my people go. And Moses doesn't know who he's talking to. He doesn't have a clue who this voice is. And he says, excuse me, who can I say? Is sending me to do this job. People are going to want to know. And God said, tell them, I am is sending you. And the power of that word, I am, is so great, so magnificent. It does not mean I exist. It is far more than I exist. The power of the word I am embodies so much about everything God is because we understand the difference between I'm just existing and I'm living. We understand that in our language. It's very similar in that language. He didn't say, tell them I exist. Oh, tell them I am. There are a lot of things that exist around here. The dirt exists. The rock exists. Tell them I am. I live. I am the living God. Tell them I am hath sent you. They want to do away with who this God is. There's always been an effort put forth by hell to keep people from believing in God, from trusting in his word from living a life of discipline and holiness and spreading the good news to the lost. Hell has succeeded in this day and age in bringing forth a new generation that is mostly unchurched, a generation that's never read a Bible or owned one, that mocks the modesty and the decency and the purity as antiquated and irrelevant philosophers, philosophies of an era that's long gone by. They consider virginity foolishness and they celebrate sexual conquest like the highest achievement of of carnal men and women. They have little, no concept of honoring father and mother. They have little concept of protecting their children from vulgar adult behavior. 
respecting the possessions and the property of another individual. Without the knowledge of God, they steal, they lie, they cheat, and not a twinge in their conscience. And all they know about God is what the former generation said about God. For they do not have a personal understanding. And Paul wrote with chilling accuracy when he said in the book of Romans, Yes, they knew God, but they wouldn't worship him as God. In other words, they did not acknowledge him as God. They didn't give him thanks. And then they began to think up foolish ideas of what God was like. As a result, their minds became dark and confused. Claiming to be wise, they became utter fools. And instead of worshiping the glorious, ever-living God, they worshiped idols made to look like mere people and birds and animals and reptiles. So God abandoned them to do whatever shameful things their heart desired. Does that sound like the 21st century to you? And as a result, they did vile and degrading things with each other's bodies. They traded the truth of God for a lie, and they worshiped and served the things God created instead of the Creator Himself, who is worthy of eternal praise. It should be obvious to us. It's not enough for anybody to say, I've heard about God. Nor is it enough for a person to say, I believe there is a God. I don't know how many Rush Limbaugh fans we have, but he's gone back many years and he has historically somewhere read his, his uh, points, his principles. That, and one of his principles is there is a God. Now that just sends chills up and down all kinds of people, but it doesn't do anything for me. If one of my principles is nothing more than there is a God, that's an acknowledgement of a fact. But I know God. My declaration is not there is a God. My declaration is I know who he is. He's my God. There's something more to it than just acknowledging there's something out there. But this generation did not know God. They had a superficial knowledge, but they didn't know him. It's highly unlikely that generation had never heard God's name mentioned They probably heard his name mentioned many times, but they didn't know him. It's highly unlikely that they never heard the old stories of how God led their ancestors out of Egyptian bondage because that was something that was important for the Jews to do, to pass that on. It was a matter of history. It was critically important for the Israelites to keep their history alive through oral tradition. They had heard it, but they didn't retell the stories to their children. They let the stories die. It was unimportant to them. How sad, how heartbreaking. Hosea says, my people are destroyed because they do not know me for lack of knowledge. Isaiah 5.13 says, my people will go into exile far away because they do not know me. See, people, that's what our Christian education department is about in this church. That's what our Sunday school is about in this church. It's what our children's church, our youth ministry, our TNT evangelism. It's about teaching the kids who God is. All these are vital to putting God before our children so we don't have one generation go into apostasy. The final point is a very quick point as I close. It's the benefit of seeing the works of the Lord. We're part of a network of Pentecostal churches. We, of all people, ought to be anticipating the power of the Holy Spirit in our midst. We, of all people, 
should be expecting signs and wonders to follow us. This is biblical. Here's the problem. Number one is sometimes we're satisfied with noise and activity. We've got to get past cheap substitutes for the presence of God. Now, everybody likes to have a good service. And we get a little noisy on some Sundays, and people say, boy, that wasn't God there. I, I, I don't know. Maybe he was. But the noise doesn't automatically mean God was there, nor does the lack of noise mean he wasn't there. It's got to be something more than just noise. There's got to be something of substance here. And we sometimes get so satisfied with having the noise that we don't press into the real presence of God. There are churches that can definitely make more noise than we can make. I promise you. There are churches that can sponsor more activities than we can sponsor because they have more people and they have more money. They can create a lot of spectacular things that draw people. But these are poor substitutes for the actual powerful presence of God. So we cannot settle for the things which have carnal drawing power. We need to have saving power. We need to have healing power. We need to have delivering power. We need to have transformational power. The second thing that causes us to miss this is we're too unmotivated to see the genuine move of God. I know we want to educate our young generation about God. But far more than that, we want them to experience God, or at least we should. So Sunday school teacher, I don't care if you have one student, you do everything in your power to plant God in the heart of that little boy or that little girl. You do everything. You, you, get, you get time with them every Sunday. You do everything in your power to tell them who God is and how much He loves them and there's a heaven where they can go and there's a hell they want to avoid and they want to grow up to be good, strong, Christian uh, young people. And I, I tell my grandchildren, I've already started on them. I'll pull Zoe up on my lap and say, Zoe, I love you so much. And I want you to grow up to be a godly woman. I want you to love God with all of your heart. I want you to run from the very appearance of evil. I want you to cherish the good things. I want God to bless you. I start pouring into them and I talk to Zion. Zion, I want you to be a man of God. I want you to grow up and be a part of God's work and God's kingdom. I don't know they understand all that, but they're going to hear it until it takes. That's what you've got to do. You've got to pour into them. Tell them what to look forward to. Tell them how you expect them to grow up. Accept nothing less than that. So far this year in my sermons, I've been calling the church to press into a deeper place with God than we are now. I've been calling the church for bigger efforts in prayer and fasting. I've been calling people to anticipate a move of God. And I keep encouraging the people to ask God, do it again just like you did in days gone by. I want more than a building. I want more than regularly scheduled services. I want more than a prepared sermon. And I want more than a nice time of worship. I want heaven to touch earth at West Side. I want God to walk down the long staircase and enter our world with his power and his presence and his fellowship. But we are one generation from losing that. If we settle for less... Our generation. 
If we don't let our young people see the power of God in our lives and in our church, they won't have a clue, next generation. They'll come and they'll go through the actions, but they won't know the power of God. That's why I'm telling you, older generation, it is vital that we have the power of God in our midst so we have the young people witness why we love God and why we're serving Him. Let's press in one generation away. And the evangelists of hell, I promise you, are working tirelessly to claim this generation for their own. Spare no expense because hell is sparing no expense. Spare no expense to win them into the kingdom. It's a battlefield and the souls of the young men and women are at stake one generation away. Let's don't lose them.